Hey, Risto here at George Mason University. I'm joined today by Dr. Thomas Cornby from Leeds Beckett University. Uh, Tom is the co-author of a article titled Developing Evidence-Informed Principles for Trauma-Aware Pedagogies in Physical Education. Um, and that was just published in Physical Education and Sport Pedagogy. Uh, Tom, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Risto, it's an absolute pleasure to be back and to chat with you as usual. Um, especially now, because this is arguably my favorite ever article. Um, so, yeah, thanks for having me on. And I'd like to also acknowledge my co-authors who, you know, without those guys, I wouldn't have been able to get this published. So that's Dr. Rachel Sanford and Dr. Oliver Hooper from Loughborough University in the UK and Dr. Rachel Green and Julie Avery from Monash University in Australia. Um, and I think it's probably only fair um, to give a massive shout out as well to... Um, if a shout out is still a thing that, you know, that the kids do these days, um, big shout out to our critical friend, Dr. Shirley Gray from Edinburgh University, who provided some really valuable feedback on the paper. Awesome. And I, and I know that when, when you uh, were talking about this paper, I, I saw it come across Twitter and you were really excited about this. And I, and I want to get to why you're so excited about it. Uh, but first, I'll, I'll ask you about care experienced youth. You first taught me this term, uh, care experienced youth. A few years ago but one thing I never actually asked uh, even though now we've like co-edited a book together and we've been on numerous calls and Skype or zooms and and so why are you interested in working with this population where does where does that actually stem from that's that's a good question um, thanks I came I, up with that myself <laughs> you do good work keep it up um, I think to be honest I think it's a combination of a, a bit of professional curiosity and um, and a continuation of my PhD research. So in no particular order, my PhD focused on, on family and different types of family structures. Um, for example, lone parent families, step families, and, and our traditional two-parent, what you would term a nuclear family. Mm-hmm. Um, and as part of my PhD, I interviewed four or five young people who were living in foster care at the time, and I, and I really struggled to engage with them, which you know, on reflection was completely my fault. And I think I realized that as a white middle-class male from a, a relatively stable two-parent family, my world was far removed from the realities of their everyday lives. Um, and then similarly, I used to teach um, karate as I was, you know, in my more formative years. Um, and through that, taught some young people who were care experienced. Um, and I was always aware that while other kids there had parents watching on and supporting, those young people didn't. And I guess those reflections sparked my interest in um, care-experienced youth, which was reinforced when I spent um, sort of nine months in a care home conducting research there and and the recognition that there's there's a range of societal discourses about these young people that are frequently quite wide of the mark. Yeah. So let me ask you this. If... uh, I I can see why you're interested in this, and we we know the trauma... Uh, is is a serious thing, especially coming out of this pandemic. But why why do we why do we push this, or why do we need to push this to physical educators? Um, so I think if we if we take a step back, I think it's you know stemming again from the work with care experienced youth. I think it's important to recognise that in England specifically, um, sixty three sixty four percent ish of young people who enter care, enter care because of abuse or neglect. Um, And we know that exposure to sort of physical, verbal, sexual abuse or physical or emotional neglect 
along with things like um, parental separation, domestic violence, substance misuse, mental illness, and a range of other things are termed, you know, these things are termed adverse childhood experiences. And adverse childhood experiences specifically are things that describe a range of stressful events that children or, or young people have been exposed to whilst growing up. And if any of those experiences overwhelm that child's ability to cope or creates a, a sense of extreme threat that might have lasting negative impacts on you know, their, their well-being, then it's considered to be traumatic. So at the moment, whilst I'm looking at it from sort of a care-experienced youth perspective, there are a range of adverse childhood experiences that, yes, they're disproportionately associated with care-experienced young people, but they are also associated with a range of other individuals. Um, and I think if we, you know, if we take that further, um, that list of um, adverse childhood experiences that I just mentioned was, was expanded in 2018 um, to cover things like uh, facing racism, witnessing community violence, living in an unsafe neighbourhood, um, being bullied, um, suffering the death of a parent or or even things like having a lack of food and being exposed to consistent parental arguments all those are also considered adverse adverse childhood experiences that could lead to trauma so mm -hmm. it's it's something that is really really broad and could impact on a range of individuals so you know we need to recognize that any child or young person could have been exposed to adverse experiences and i know that in 2017, there was a, a study um, conducted in the United States that reported that two thirds of children in the United States had experienced at least one traumatic event. Um, so it's really prominent. It's really prominent. And the, the current COVID pandemic has arguably only exacerbated this. Um, so it's, you know, it's increasingly prevalent, really. Yeah, it's it's interesting, because I, I had not heard of that term before I, I did a webinar with uh, Shape America and Jen Walton Facet was running and, and you know there's other people on there Sarah Benez and you know they they put this term out there and I was like huh I've never seen that and they you know said you could easily do like a test to see like I so I typed it into Google and just went through the questions and it's very interesting it's like you could just easily do this on Google and see what your score is on the your ACEs score mm -hmm. um and when I did that, I was like, oh, I did not, I, I scored a zero. Like I, it shows, it kind of like reinforces that, wow, I had a very different childhood because I'm reading the questions and I'm like, oh, that would be terrible if that happened to you. And then you think about how can you learn as a student when those things are happening and yeah. they're not being addressed. And it, I mean, it's, it's it's reality for students, which is, which is terrible. Absolutely. I mean, you know, think about the, the work that you've done in your reach program. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I bet there are loads of young people that have experienced some form of adverse childhood experience and we're just not aware of it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I know that there are because in that first program that we ran and I, I would say very similar to your experience in the sense that I was not connecting with them and that was yeah. on me. Right. Mm -hmm. But uh, that school, they had 35 percent of the students who attended that school were from shelters in the local area. 
they weren't going home to a solid family and yeah you know the after school program was a place where they got to hang out with their friends in a very safe place and inside of a gym so it's very very different Um, absolutely so in that article you you talk about the field of physical education with some exceptions has a lack of dialogue and research on how trauma affects students and how teachers can really inform their pedagogy based on that. So why, why do you think with this, like childhood trauma is so prevalent, you talked about two thirds of you know, students in the US have gone through at least one. Why is there a lack of research or on a pedagogical response? And how do we kind of fill this gap other than the paper that you wrote? <laughs> um, so I think First, we need to recognise that, that trauma-informed approaches have been advocated for within um, social work, social care and education more broadly for, for quite some time. Um, but I do think we've just been a bit behind the curve when it comes to PE and trauma specifically. Um, but that said, I also think that while we might be a bit behind the curve there, PE as a field has dealt with many of the associated issues such as mental health Um, social emotional learning and so on so while we've not specifically tackled trauma per se um, we have a wealth of literature on many of the related concepts or issues now i think moving forward there's a there is a growing awareness of the impact of trauma in the field um, and that's evidenced by the recent you know feature series in the journal of physical education recreation and dance that that was led by jennifer walton fazette and and doug ellison Um, but I think as a PE community, we still need to first better understand the lived experiences of those who've experienced trauma um, in order to gain a better understanding of then how that's impacted their engagement within physical education. So I think that's the starting point for us. You know, we're, we're still early days in this. Yeah, absolutely. Let's let's get into the article a little bit more. You uh, wrote about your authors and your co-authors involvement in two programs, Right to be Active and Healing Matters. They were in the UK and Australia. So can you talk to me about the process or the development that went into these five principles of trauma where pedagogy, like what did, what did the research look like? Where did these five principles come from? Yeah, certainly. Um, so I'll try and provide a, a snapshot of the two projects here and, and hope that I do them both justice. Um, so first, the Right to Be Active project was um, essentially led by Rachel Sanford at Loughborough University um, with myself and Rebecca Duncan uh, from Loughborough and Oliver Hooper as well. And it drew on the voices of um, care experienced youth across a range of different contexts. So, you know, foster care, uh, residential homes and so on, um, as well as those who work with or for them in order to explore their sport and physical activity experiences. And in doing so, it basically highlighted the significant roles that schools play Um, or are thought to play in facilitating access and opportunity to engagement in sport and physical activity for these young people. But I think our findings also revealed that, um, you know, despite a desire to facilitate engagement in those activities, teachers and and educators more broadly often lacked specific knowledge with regard to the realities of those young people's lives and had received little, if any, training regarding the potential role of trauma in shaping those experiences. So so that's the sort of right to be active project. Similarly, um, the Healing Matters project in Australia, which was um, led by Rachel Green, sought to you know gather the perspectives of children living in uh, what's termed in Australia out of home care 
and it examined the barriers to participation in physical activity more broadly, and that included in community sports clubs. And the findings from that project led to a recommendation to work with the state bodies in Australia to build some form of capacity for sports coaches and volunteers to, in essence, to understand and engage young people from a trauma-aware perspective um, and to ensure that they're able to respond um, to the increasingly complex needs of care-experienced youth. And I guess from both of those projects, what we recognised collectively um, after many, many conversations is that we actually had a wealth of, of um, data from young people, you know, youth voice, along with very concrete examples that could help inform teachers with regards to what those principles might look like and how they might underpin trauma-aware pedagogies for PE. And I think what we started to do is we started to look at some of the frameworks that are out there already um, and realised that those frameworks weren't necessarily related or not related, but weren't developed with PE in mind specifically. Um, and then it was a case of looking at those frameworks, looking at the data that we'd got from young people and what our experiences were telling, were, telling us. Um, and then magically, um, we sort of, after batting it backwards and forwards, um, constructed these five youth voice-informed principles um, that we definitely see as a starting point for further discussions, not the end point, as it were. Yeah. And I, and uh, Rachel and Oliver were on Ash Casey's podcast as well. And I was, uh, I was in there and I, and they echoed that same part of like, Hey, this is a, this is a start. It's going to be something that we're built on. And um, I, I would recommend anybody who's listening to, to this, that who's interested in that to look that up as well, because there's a, there's a great conversation about the kind of evolution of this paper and, you know, you know, where, because there have been things that are similar to trauma-informed pedagogies, TPSR and yep. ethic of care by Nell Noddings. And there are other things that have been brought in, but it's not necessarily that it hasn't been put together in uh, up until like now. Why do you, why yeah. do you think that is? I mean, I think the, I guess the difference is the explicit focus on, on trauma and, you know, one of the things I probably should have mentioned earlier is the key bit about trauma is the recognition of the impact of it on young people. So neurologically, physiologically and psychologically. And I think that's probably the area that we haven't explicitly focused on before. But like you say, there are a lot of things going on, you know, TPSR, um, the ethic of care, any relational pedagogies, really, that, that align with this. So it's about bridging those two. It's about saying, well, what's the impact and then how can we perhaps mitigate that impact by using these uh, trauma aware pedagogies which we're not trying to reinvent the wheel these things exist already mm -hmm. yeah and and overall i took from the article that while physical education presents this environment that's full of situations that could trigger a negative response so uh, locker rooms physical contact being in aggressive team games you talk about that it's an also environment where teachers have really the best opportunity to positively impact those students by utilizing these trauma-informed practices in their teaching. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. I think you, you know, you're spot on. Um, so PE definitely provides a, a unique context and one in which probably more arguably more so than any other school subject, there is a greater potential to um, 
trigger trauma-related responses. So, you know, as you note, the the public nature of participation, the use of physical contact between students and students, students and teachers, um, whilst absolutely necessary in, in PE, can be, you know, far from straightforward. And there are, you know, there are many times when someone who's experienced trauma finds physical contact unwelcome. Um, and we've suggested that PE specifically may find that childhood trauma um, or those who've experienced childhood trauma adopt these behavioral coping mechanisms that lead to trauma manifesting in, you know, small fouls, um, the potential to escalate those small fouls into physical contact between people, fights and scuffles, uh, students refusing to be part of a team or perhaps displaying an inability to form connections with teammates, uh, struggling to adhere to rules, those sorts of things. But as you say, PE is a space where we can impact those young people positively through uh, a trauma-aware lens that first allows us to recognize the signs of trauma. So recognize that if students are acting out in those ways, it's not necessarily always because they're bad kids, but they may have experienced something that's leading to that. Um, so recognizing the signs of trauma, better understanding or even predicting situations that might be triggers for students. Um, and, you know, PE is also a space where we can work with them to prevent that triggering, prevent re-traumatization. And if we do this, then, you know, we'll develop students' self-awareness, we'll develop their self-regulation skills, uh, and we can build and maintain these safe environments and, and enhance caring teacher-student relationships. Yeah, and, and I think Ash brought this up too, that, you know, it's about awareness. And if you feel like you have never seen a student who has gone through trauma in your classroom, you're just not aware because it's highly likely if you taught more than a couple years that you have come through, you know, you, you've seen students who have dealt with this trauma, but you're just not aware of it. And I think that that's an easy step to just like understand where this could be coming from. What are the, you know, what are the pieces that show that that student might have dealt with trauma? And I think sometimes when you have students who are disruptive in class or you're just, you know, labeling them a bad student or however you look at it, that's, that's a reaction to a situation. It's not, yeah. the, it's not a third graders, you know, final who they become. It's not that behavior. It's they're trying to reach out in a, in a way that they just don't understand how to talk about it. Yeah. I think the, the other important thing is, you know, we've got to remember that this is, recognizing trauma is not easy because the the range of adverse childhood experiences you know the first list i listed was 10 then there's been another list with another 10 so there's 20 things that are deemed to potentially create trauma and a lot of those are invisible mm -hmm. like you know you can't always see it you don't you don't necessarily know it um so I think, you know, the, you're right. The first step is trying to get a better understanding of it and then being able to recognize the signs of it. But that's not an easy thing when, you know, a lot of it is invisible. Yeah, absolutely. And so talking about one of your principles, you talk about ensuring safety and well-being. And I think when people, especially in physical education, talk about safety, there's this tendency to automatically assume we're referring to physical safety. And your article 
you all discuss how it's encompassing this feeling of physical and emotional safety. So what would you say that it means for a student to feel safe in a, in a PE classroom? Oh, um, what does it mean for a student to feel safe? Well, um, first, I think we need to remember that um, if anyone has experienced trauma, they will likely have a heightened sense of threat um, and perceive the world in, you know, inverted commas as a, you know, quite an unsafe space. So as practitioners in PE, we've got to first ensure that they feel physically safe, but second, they feel emotionally safe. And this means providing a space where students can perhaps discuss their feelings without fear of judgment, where they can discuss things that might, you know, cause them upset or might cause or, or trigger a trauma related response. Um, and PE teachers, and I bet a lot of PE teachers already do this, they need to demonstrate sensitivity, understanding, compassion, and a non-judgmental attitude. And if you do that, you're creating the environment where where it is a safe space for, for young people. So when I, when I read the article, I came, came up with this understanding that all of the principles are intertwined. So you talk about developing and sustaining a positive relationship that fosters a sense of belonging. And I think that that's something that's foundational to the other four principles. And because students can't feel safe or develop a self-belief or have a voice in the classroom where they don't have this like fundamental feeling of trust between themselves and the teacher. So can you talk to me about the importance of developing relationships with students and how these principles kind of work in with that development of uh, relationships? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think if we revisit the, the principle of safety that I, I just spoke about, I guess in action in this principle, um, and this is just one suggestion, we could encourage teachers to um, check in with students throughout the lesson as a means of providing encouragement and support and trying to reinforce that feeling of safety. And by doing that, we would also be building uh, and promoting trust between student and teacher and then setting the foundations for developing those relationships which we know within the broader literature as a play community we recognize are vital for ensuring more inclusive socially just and equitable outcomes for all students so you know to add to that um, if we develop relationships by demonstrating that um, and, and using Nell Nodding's work and ethos of care mm -hmm. and working on relational concepts such as trust, empathy and kindness, then we might find PE teachers are also facilitating a sense of belonging, which is in turn reflected in student engagement. So, yeah, absolutely. While we see these as um, individual principles, you're right, they are absolutely interrelated. Um, and I think the important point to make is that with these principles, we aren't, as I said earlier, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel. Rather, what we're trying to do is draw attention to things that could be done to help students who have experienced trauma. And we see these, you know, it's really important. We see these as simply just reflective of good pedagogy in general. Um, yeah. So when you talk about promoting strengths and self-belief, what does self-belief look like? And how can a teacher know that they're enabling their students to build the sense of self or self-esteem or self-efficacy? Oh, you threw in a couple of questions there, didn't you? Yeah. Um, just sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it's a single one. Sometimes it's a litany of questions, and I hope that you forget one so I can call you out at the end. <laughs> nice. I like your style. Um, so let me try and go through these. So why strengths and self-belief? Um, 
so first, anyone who's been exposed to trauma is likely to view themselves negatively. And so promoting student strengths, first and foremost, can help build self-esteem and self-efficacy. And this would not only help young people heal from trauma, but it might also support their engagement in education more broadly. Now, in terms of what self-belief might look like, um, and I'm probably drawing on, you know, Albert Bandura's definitions here, Mm -hmm. um, then it's very much intertwined with the concept of self-efficacy. So an individual's belief in their ability to succeed in in given situations. Now, if teachers adopt a strengths-based approach to teaching PE, then they might focus more on what students have achieved. They might acknowledge effort rather than just the end product. They might demonstrate their own belief in the student's ability to succeed. But more than that, they might also be open to different ways of moving, learning and assessing that the students would excel at. So I guess, um, and I think this is your, your other question, I guess a teacher can know that they're enabling students to build self-efficacy or self-belief if the students are first and foremost actively engaging, um, actively engaging in conversations about any new ways of moving or learning or assessing. And if they feel that they uh, have a voice um, rather than are remaining silent in that you know, particular context. And if students are engaging with us, voicing their opinions, then I think we've, we're working on building self-belief and self-efficacy. So you, you just talked about this, about listening to students, and you led with these principles as being student voice driven. So what role does student voice play in all of this? Um, well, personally, I think I'm a, I'd like to think I'm a big advocate of, of youth or student voice. And I think if we can find ways of facilitating or, um, I guess, importantly, responding to or acting on youth voice, then it will help build rapport, strengthen relationships between student and teacher. And I think we need to be careful not, we do need to be careful not to let go of the reins completely. Um, and as it were, let youth voice run riot. Um, because for young people who've experienced trauma, this wouldn't make sense because they need some form of structure and routine, which can be facilitated by the teacher. Um, And if we do that, it can support students' self-regulation. But we know that enabling youth voice in decision-making around um, perhaps alternative activities or new ways of moving, as I said before, then it helps to develop a sense of ownership and leads to greater engagement. But I think the key is finding ways to co-construct curriculum, pedagogies uh, and so on that draw on the strengths of everyone involved. So the young people have a say, but they're not the only ones in that context. Teachers need to provide some form of structure and routine and not let youth voice um, just run away with it. So last question, because you've done such a great job pairing all of these questions. Just What's the next step? So how do you kind of hope that this article will influence future research or where do you see kind of going beyond this? Um, So I think, I think we were conscious when we wrote the paper um, and certainly in follow-up conversations that um, these principles are, as we've said, informed by youth voice. And I think in keeping with the, you know, the overarching mantra that the context is important then we need to recognise that this isn't the only voice that needs to be included in the discussions around trauma or indeed what the principles are uh, as an end result. Mm-hmm. Um, so we haven't, for instance, yet, I'll put yet in, um, 
spoken to in-service teachers or those who are working with young people on a daily basis. So our next steps um, are to engage first with pre-service teachers and then in-service teachers to get their thoughts and reflections on trauma more broadly, the principles that we suggest specifically. And as we said in the paper, and again, I'm reiterating this, but we see it as a starting point for further conversations. And I think that is really important. These aren't fixed principles. They aren't the be all and end all. The context is important and different contexts might very well lend themselves to perhaps a greater priority of some principles than others, or indeed different principles altogether. Um, so I think we need to engage with other voices in the field and recognize that changing practice isn't easy and we need to work with teachers to reflect on and refine, if necessary, the principles that we've identified. Tom, that that is a great way to end this podcast. Thank you so much. I think you're right. It's it's you know, if you if your goal was to start this conversation and push this conversation forward, you've done a very good job at that because I think there's a lot of buzz about this paper. There's a lot of people who have been chatting about this on Twitter. You've been on two podcasts now uh, talking about it. So I really appreciate uh, the time and, uh, and I love the article. Appreciate it. Thanks, Risto. Thanks, Risto. It's always a pleasure to be on. So for those of you who want to read the full article, uh, you can check the full citation in the comments section. Um, and thank you to Greg Coogan for his help in producing this podcast. And uh, that's all we got on this one. Thanks for listening. If you're still listening, you're probably really into health and physical education. So I'm going to use this opportunity to pitch our master's program to you if you don't have your master's degree yet. Um, our 100% online master's degree program we offer at George Mason is affordable. You can do it while teaching, and it's high quality. Um, Mason was listed as one of the top 50 universities under 50 years old in the world. Our education department was ranked in the top 10 nationally for the online master's degree program in curriculum and instruction. The master's degree uh, revolves around your teaching. So you'll use assignments from the classes to immediately apply research and best practices to your classes. You'll be part of a tight-knit cohort of health and physical education professionals who are passionate about teaching. You're also gonna get an opportunity to interact with students in other content areas. So if you're interested, you can email me, look me up on Twitter, or you can go on the hpewebsite.com under study with us and watch a video that I've made.